is the RPG uh, RPG business pitfalls and how to avoid them panel. Yeah. Um, we are the Indie League plus Cat Tobin. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we just introduce ourselves? Because there, there are only three of us. We can. We could do that. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. We, I think we will. So, um, do you we... want me to start so we can make tea? Okay. Yeah. All right. Works. So. Uh, Hello everyone, uh, I am Jay Isles, uh, lead designer and, and lead everything at UFO Press. Um, I've made a number of indie RPGs like uh, Legacy Life Among the Ruins, Void Heart Symphony, just a bunch of little things. Um, come to our stool downstairs and have a look. And I'm joined by someone who is much bigger than I. <laughs> Not really, I'd say you're, you've got a good couple of inches on me. Okay, um, okay. Uh, my name is Kat Tobin. I'm the co-owner and managing director of Pelgrane Press, and we publish tabletop RPGs like Thirteenth Age, Knights Black Agents, and Trail of Cthulhu, and hashtag feminism. So I usually get that in there at the end, just <laughs> to be clear about where we are. Excellent. And I am Josh Fox. I am one half of Black Armada Games. We are the publishers of Lovecraft Desk, Flotsam Adrift Amongst the Stars, and Bite Marks, and coming soon, Last Fleet, Kickstarter, yay. Uh, or maybe not Kickstarter if they keep busting unions. But, you know. um, yeah, and uh, we would have with us uh, Maz Hamilton, who is uh, CEO, I want to say, of... Rose. Yeah, I think, I think she's. I think that's COO. Yeah. COO. I think. Yeah. CEO. Okay. Chief yeah. operating officer. Uh, yeah. Chief. Okay. Yeah. Running the show. Yes. Yeah. So I do. Uh, who are the people who make? Um, Maz has been ill, mm. and so he's not here. But I do have a detailed example, which I'll at some point. Excellent. I've had it downloaded into my brain, so you're going to hear all about it. So Rowan Rook and Deckard are the people who make Spire, Goblin Quest, Honey Heist, Honey Heist, <laughs> bunch of uh, big indie stuff from the oh. UK. Heart, yes, Heart, yeah, most yeah. recently. now on back a kit. <laughs> cool. Um, so what I thought we'd do, we're going to go through uh, three topics, which I hope we'll whistle through fairly quickly, and then we'll have time for Q&A. Um, so I thought we would start with our Kickstarter nightmares around um, stretch goals and that kind of thing. So I think, Kat, <laughs> I think you had a story about this. <laughs> I have many stories about this. Um, uh, yeah. <clears throat> So I have, I have two specific stories um, that, if time permits, uh, I will share both of around um, stretch goals and Kickstarters and the kind of the strategy around when you run a Kickstarter, uh, what you offer as a stretch goal, how many of them you offer as a stretch goal, and um, how you are going to fulfill that stretch goal have, have been the undoing of many a good company uh, in our industry, and, and God knows I was nearly one. Um, so uh, a couple of years ago we ran a Kickstarter called the Dracula Dossier um, which is for our uh, modern day spies versus vampires game Knights Black Agents um, and the concept of the Dracula Dossier is that uh, Dracula the novel is um, it's uh, an after uh, report of events that really, really happened when MI6 tried to recruit Dracula as a spy and it went really badly. Um, so we did this big Kickstarter for the Dracula dossier. It's an amazing product, an amazing world. Uh, it's very, very cool. And we decided that we would do some prop documents because it's all about spying and you know we'd have these kind of bits that like people could share at the table and stuff. So we worked with um, a guy called Cthulhu Dean, Dean Engelhart, who's based in South Australia. And he is an incredible prop creator prop document creator so we we were like you know I was like great you know 500 people back to the level that would get these prop documents 
And I thought, yeah, this is, this is brilliant. Um, and then he sent me through the PDF of the prop documents and I looked at them and I went, wow, these are, these are amazing. These are so very, very cool. If I just print these out and give them to backers, they'll be a bit like, oh, thanks for saving me the trouble of printing these myself. And I was like, oh, okay, so like, I guess probably what we could do is make them a bit more authentic, like add a kind of a hand designed element to them. These prop documents, some of them have tears on them, tears down the side, some of them are torn in half, sellotaped back together, some of them are staples, some of them are staples that have been taken out. Um, and a lot of them are kind of aged. They're from the 1890s, they date from that time, so they need to be kind of antique looking. Um, so the TLDR and uh, the learning opportunity for all of you to take away and hopefully never do in your own Kickstarters um, is that uh, myself and my business partner, Simon, um, ended up individually hand aging by tea soaking and then baking. Um, we flicked ink uh, on pages to be blood spatters. Uh, we tore strips of paper off some documents. We sellotaped some documents back together. We added staples, we removed staples. Um, we, what was, oh, there was a set of 17 uh, index cards which each had like individual yellow stickers on them. So every set got 17 of them, multiply 17 by 500 individual hand laid on stickers. Um, so we ended up hand creating 500 sets of prop documents called the Hawkins Papers. Now, I stand by them as an amazing piece of art, but do not do this at home, kids, <laughs> please. I beg you, learn from my mistake. I, so what, would you, what's, what do you think people should do if they want to create something beautiful like that and avoid... I think that's a great question. I mean, what we've, what we've done in The Yellow King, which has a whole other um, set of issues that we'll probably be touching on in a later segment, um, what we did for The Yellow King was um, we, we did an ultra-limited edition. So um, Robin, who's the writer of our Yellow King role-playing game, is going to individually hand annotate 10, only 10 books and add kind of ephemera and stuff like that to them. So the lesson that I learned is that if you are going to do something really um, unique and artisanal, then make sure it's very, very limited to what you as a person can physically produce. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, Jay, did you have a, a thing about stretch yeah. goals to talk about too? Um, so I have a few things. Uh, one just sort of keying off that is uh, when I kickstarted Legacy 2nd Edition, one of the things that I promised to a high backer was a certain tier, I'd sign your book, and at an even higher tier, I would uh, write a unique sort of lost device on the front page of your book. Um, and so they ended up with like maybe a hundred or so people wanting the signed edition, and like 60 or 70 people wanting the uh, cool device thing. And what I hadn't realized with that when I was promising that is I didn't know what my supply chain was going to be. So I ended up um, driving down to the warehouse where the books were being stored and just sitting there for about five or six hours, I think, uh, just signing these books and writing unique devices in these books. And I'm quite happy with like the range of things I wrote. I mean, obviously each one, I could have wrote the same one in each book, but <laughs> I didn't want to. That, but like, what I realised following on from that is there was 
no real way set up in the warehouse to log those as different uh, stock keeping units. Um, which, so I tried to sort it out, but it meant that like when uh, it got to sending them to backers, uh, they were just picking them from the general pool of signed books. So some people with the super special device one were getting signed books, some people get, only got the signed, get the whatever. So I ended up, um, for a few people, just uh, signing postcards and sending those instead. Special postcards I got printed, and I got so many of those printed, it was far too many. <laughs> but um, so that's one thing. Uh, when you're talking about individualized items, really keep an eye on what your supply chain is going to look like, how you're actually going to get those made, how you're going to get them back to the system and keep them distinct. Um, like what I might have done instead is offer a small amount of those and actually have them shipped to my house, sign and identify them and then mail them myself there so that I knew who was getting what. So in terms of stretch goals, Another thing with Legacy is I wanted to make like alternative takes on its um, generational storytelling sort of thing. So I hired a, so I put out an open call for pitches, um, hired quite a few people to make different ones as we passed stretch goals. But as it turns out, what that ended up meaning is that the amount of books I was using the Kickstarter to make was continually increasing until like, by the end, what would have been like a sort of... So we ended up getting about sort of £70,000 for that one. Um, but then that got split up over like seven or eight different books, which actually means that the margins start getting a bit lower and lower and lower. And um, one thing I wasn't aware of at that time is like, if you've got five small books and you're doing like a thousand copies of each, that's a lot more expensive than doing a thousand copies of a anthology book. Um, so like a book that's five times the size um, <coughs> costs a lot less than five individual books that are each a fifth of the size. Um, because you've got like printer set up and you've got um, mm -hmm. all that economies of scale kicking in. Um, which meant that in the end what was a project that looked to be like pretty damn profitable on my spreadsheet once I actually like got quotes in from printers, I realised I didn't actually have enough budget to fulfil all the stretch goals. So I ended up running another Kickstarter for a print run of those books, and thankfully I hadn't sold, well, of extra books, rather. I managed to print every book that I'd sold to people as a result of that Kickstarter, but the ones that I'd promised people that I would make as stretch goals, I ended up having to run a second Kickstarter for, which is never, never something you're happy doing. And that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the key things about Kickstarter is that it's an unknown quantity. You know, you can have the, the best and most accurate spreadsheets and budgets and plans going into it, but you get caught up in the excitement of the campaign and, you know, it's all about trying to get more people in and do more for the people that are in and give more back to the backers. And I think if you're a kind, if you're a kind of a kind and generous person, you want to give even more back to thank them for the support that they're giving you. So it can be very easy to... Yeah, to just run over. Sorry, and another thing that keys less into the sort of logistics and economic side of things and more into the psychological side of things is you've got to be careful with stretch goals because they're all things you want to do, right? And things you put on the table in front of backers, but you might not hit them. And when you're uh, looking at your Kickstarter total, 
and maybe like funded in like the space of a few hours and you should be feeling like absolutely amazing about that but you're seeing oh I haven't hit these stretch goals and every time I check the Kickstarter oh we haven't hit that yet and if you're not careful stretch goals can turn into something that like makes you sad to run the Kickstarter or a great mm. source of stress because especially if like your Kickstarter closes and there's a stretch goal you were really excited about that didn't get hit I mean are you going to not make that thing you're really excited about <laughs> so Oh, I mean, the, the psychology of Kickstarters in general, I think, the, the, there's a whole kind of thing with Kickstarters where you have a big rush in the first 24 hours and you feel great, and then it really slows down, it gets quiet, and you spend like three weeks just kind of watching it trickle along the bottom, yeah. and you feel dreadful. You shouldn't feel dreadful, because you knew this was going to happen, it happens with the <laughs> Kickstarter, and yet yeah. you do. I kind of, I want to create a service where you can pay somebody to just watch your Kickstarter for you, and you just <laughs> don't get involved. And only send so you updates when interesting things are happening, or you've hit yeah. another stretch goal or it, something. Yeah. Exactly. But I think I'd still be, even if I did that, I'd still go and re look at the page. Yeah, so would I. <laughs> and yes. like, I couldn't not. Yeah. yeah. Shall we move on to arts? We have uh, art nightmares. So, uh, Jay, I think you had yeah. a good story about this. So, um, it was something that sort of bundled up with um, Legacy Fulfillment. Is, uh, so, with all these extra books that we were making, I thought, well, Legacy is a game that brought a lot of people in on the strength of its art. I'm going to make sure that each of these new books has a new aesthetic, a new like look that completely changes how... Um, it feels to suit the tone of the book um, and you know so I looked at a bunch of new artists and for the most case that was really useful and, and worked very well but um, some artists where you know I they were like really enthusiastic about the project and I thought cool and you know sent them a draft you know a contract and they you know signed it and then I sent them briefs and then things just trucked along and kept trucking along and as I was working on other products and other um, bits of the line it sort of fell to the back burner and I stopped like remembering oh yeah this artist said they'd have pieces back for me by now and they haven't and then I'd you know eventually remember like oh yeah and send them an email how's it going and like there would always be like an update within a week or so but it might just be like here's a few more sketches or whatever and things that like Every piece of art that I got from this artist was great. But there was a point where I realised I've got three pieces of art. This book is now uh, holding up the rest of the production schedule. I'm waiting for 18 more pieces. Is this actually going to happen? And I ended up realising, no, no, it's probably not. I, and like, I ended up just going to an artist that I knew was very reliable and, you know, had nice art that kind of fitted what this other artist was doing and importantly meant I could make the book and um, so yeah so keep an eye on your artists because people aren't always going to sort of send you the red flags people aren't always going to sort of show you like that there is a problem and you need to be on top of that and always make sure in your contracts that you're sending out to artists that there's clear expectations about communication clear expectations about timeliness and clear considerations about what happens to the art that's already been made if you kill the um, contract and whether the art goes to you or goes to them, whether you pay for the art that's been done so far, whether they pay for it. But just make sure that you're, you have that down. 
Yeah, definitely. I, and and I just I'd say there's a broader point about kind of managing people who are going to work yeah. with you. Um, there's always going to be that one person who just lets the whole thing drop or is just really really late all the time or maybe they submit something that is not the quality you expect I think that there's, there's a thing about the kind of contract making expectations clear for them there's also something about setting expectations for yourself um, and saying at what point am I going to say um, this is not good enough you know, I'm just on the point of hiring an artist actually for my next project and I got to the, to the point where I was just about to press go and I was like actually you know it took this person a month to respond to my last email. Mm -hmm. I'll just go and check in with other people whether they think that's reasonable. And no, no, that's not reasonable. So I just dropped it and I said, well, I'm going to take a little bit of extra time to hire somebody who's more responsive. My, my new artist replies to emails within 24 hours and I feel so much more comfortable. Maybe the other person would have got me the art, but it is, is it worth that stress to you to have somebody who's going to make that's going to be your job and the thing that's bothering you every night for like a year. I think that's so important. Like we talk a lot about kind of talented people in our industry, but honestly, I can tell you from a hiring perspective, I will always, always hire the more reliable person over the super talented person who just will flake out or will mm. be late or will not deliver. It's it's a thing that we don't talk about often enough, I think, is people's reliability. And also communication as well, mm. keeping those lines of communication open because life happens to everyone. Life happens to me all the time. Life happens to freelancers. You know, you're not always going to be their first priority. They're going to be working on other projects. They're probably going to have a day job, families that they're also trying to juggle. But once you, if you work with somebody who has good communication skills, and they just flag up to you, you know, they just need to flag up to you that there's going to be a delay and that way you can manage your timelines, you can manage your production schedule, you can arrange things around that and more importantly you can manage your backers expectations and manage your customers expectations and say look the artist has had this life issue and so things are going to be running late but you can only do that like, like Jay was saying with when people are ghosting on you and they're just not responding, not replying to emails or they're giving you a half-assed response. You know, you need good communication and reliability are like two of the most important skills in a, in a freelancer that you're hiring. And it's um, tempting to think that like, once a contract's been signed and like money is in the equation, some people will get more reliable. But that that hasn't been my experience in general. A thing that I have done um, with my last project, and I'm doing it with my next project too, is to hire two artists. Um, and this isn't because I didn't like either of the artists enough to hire them for the whole thing. I really wanted to, and it's so tempting because I'm looking at their art going, this is so gorgeous, I want this for the whole project. But actually you're having two, it means that if one of them falls under a bus, if one of them gets sick, if one of them flakes on me, I have a backup and I can uh, adjust the quantities of art being given to each artist um, accordingly. So, and it didn't come out actually last time, you know, they both did exactly what I wanted them to, but if they hadn't, that would have been an incredible backup plan because you cannot put your book out without the art in, you're not going to do yeah. that. Mm. Um, so an, another just um, kind of finishing off the things that you should have in your contract, um, a thing that I learned on an earlier project actually on the Dracula dossier as well was we had um, a book that was full of NPCs and we wanted illustrations of each of the NPCs 
Um, so I hired quite a lot of artists to, to do these illustrations of NPCs. And one artist was super fast and really, really good, really great communication and all of that. And I was really excited about her and she was like churning through these portraits and I was going, these are really great. And I showed it to, um, I showed it to, to a colleague and they were like, oh, I've, I've seen that picture before. And I was like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? <laughs> this is my art that I've just got from my artist. And they were like, that's a stock photo. And I was like, wait, what? Um, and it, what it turned out that this artist was doing was basically painting over um, photos of celebrities, uh, stock photos, and basically photos that, images that she didn't have the rights to, and essentially just painting over them. Um, and I hadn't picked up enough because they were coming in and I was just approving them and not really kind of looking at them. Um, but once I went back and looked at them, they were clearly recognizably celebrity portraits, some of them, and I was like, oh man. Um, and something that we had not ever thought to put in our contracts up to that point was that all of the work that you were providing had to be your own work. And if it was not your own work that you were taking full liability, like you were basically giving us original work that you had the copyright to and you had created yourself. And you know, if you didn't, that wasn't on us, that was on you. So it's talking about things to add to contracts, you know, you wouldn't have thought it would need to be said, but we've also had copy and pastes from Wikipedia come in in some of our books. Um, so you have to be super careful with making sure that people are giving you original work. I'm really grateful to you for that piece of advice because our stock contract now has that in it. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've gone straight ahead and put that in. Yeah. The thing is that um, I photo bash art and mm -hmm. like edited photos and that sort of thing is quite nice and cheap. Yeah. If it fits your book's aesthetic, mm -hmm. but you need to be very, very careful with usage. Yeah. I mean, like, so I've been using like mm -hmm. um, uh, free usage mm -hmm. photos, yeah. uh, but there are specific websites. Uh, Unsplash.com mm -hmm. is a good one yeah. uh, that has uh, photos with no licenses attached. And even there, like, sometimes I'm a little suspicious mm. that people might be like, uploading photos that they didn't take, they all that um, sort of thing. Yeah. So it's still something to use with care yeah. if you have to use it. Mm -hmm. And uh, on, on a similar note, you can Google, if you go to Google advanced search settings, you can select uh, for commercial reuse mm -hmm. as, a, as a search term. So you, mm -hmm. you can find, you know, if you can't afford to pay for an artist, it's perfectly reasonable, a lot of people can't. That's a way to get hold of images that are safe to reuse. I would always click through to double check that they yeah. do indeed have the relevant uh, Creative like Commons licensing. Should we move on to print? Um, I am going to tell a story from Maz, uh, which I just heard earlier today. It's quite an exciting story. Um, so Roman Rook and Deco produced a game called Unbound, uh, and that is was their big uh, Kickstarter success a few years back. Um, and it was the first time they produced like an A4 size book. It was actually a uh, US letter size, but it's basically the same thing. Um, so they sent it out uh, the, the, uh, to a POD printer. So for those who don't know, print on demand is basically, instead of pr producing like uh, many hundreds or thousands of books in one go, you send a template to the printer and they will print the number of copies that are needed when they are needed and you can just keep printing and printing and printing more copies whenever you, whenever you need them. Um, so it's a great risk-free risk way to get your product out there. You, um, 
and I'll talk more about what we did with uh, Lovecraft Desk in a bit, but it, it means you only ever have the number of books that you require, so you're not paying for more than you need. Unfortunately, it turns out that the POD uh, quality in this case was not up to standard. It could not cope, the, the glue that they'd used could not cope with the weight of the paper that was required and backers received their copies. They immediately started find, getting reports that backers' copies had started falling apart, that pages had started coming out of the book. Um, and of course, because it's POD, one of the things that's different about POD is it gets the book sent, it gets sent direct from the printer to the customer. It doesn't pass through you. You don't get your thousand books in boxes which you can check through yourself. So they only found out when the when the customer received the faulty books, uh, and this obviously created a huge nightmare for them. They, they uh, worked really hard to fix it. They immediately sent out a survey to their backers asking who had had problems with it, so that people could report problems, give them the opportunity for a, a refund or a replacement, because it was only fifteen to twenty percent of the books that were balked. So. In theory, if they send another one, it's probably going to be okay. So they were doing that, and a lot of people actually were cool with it and said, "We understand, you know, things happen. And actually, we don't mind. We can, we can, we'll, we'll use sellotape to stick it back together." Um, but the important point was the Im impact on your reputation when you send something out that is faulty. Some people will be relaxed about that. Some people will decidedly not, and you have lost those customers forever, and potentially they are people who are going to be on the internet saying nasty things about you forever too. So you don't want that. So I guess the lesson from that, well, one lesson that, that Runbrook and Deckard have taken is they're never using POD again. <laughs> they always want to do a print run, and I think um, I would generally advise to do a print run if you can afford it. You can't always afford it, but if you can, it's a good thing to do. Um, but the other thing is about that responsiveness to the customer is immediately getting back to them and saying, okay, we found this problem. Don't try to hide it. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Give them the opportunity to tell you something's wrong and fix it. Even if it costs you money, fix it because it will pay off dividends in the future for the reputational benefit. People really care about this stuff. How do you want to tell your print story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my print saga. It's, um, uh, yeah, um, so it feels like bad for um, some people in the room who've already heard this. Um, but so we're currently working on um, fulfilling a Kickstarter called the Yellow King RPG. And um, our regular printer, who we've printed the majority of our books with, uh, they're a US-based printer. They're based in Michigan. Um, they went into administration um, in April last year around Free RPG Day. Um, so, tangent printer disaster. Uh, they told me that they would have our Free RPG Day books uh, in time for when we need to ship them out to get them into shops. Um, they did not. And when I said, "What? Why not?" They were like, "We're in administration." So I was like, "Okay." So I'm not. Uh, so when it came time to print the Yellow King, I was like, "Well, I'm nervous about." printing this with you, but then we got a quote from them anyway, and they wanted to charge us $75,000 just for making, they come in a, a custom slip case with a GM screen, they wanted to charge us $75,000 just for the slip screen before we even thought about books or GM screen, um, because they would have to give it to a third party printer. So we were like, okay, well that's that's no good. Um, so we, we hunted around trying to find another printer. 
Um, and we found a Chinese printer uh, who we printed one or two things with, and their quality is really good, and we were really happy with them. Um, but the problem with printing things in China is that they, they come over on boats, which take like three months to get over to, um, to the UK or the US, where our warehouses are. Um, so I was looking at that going, oh, that's just too long. You know, that's, the backers are going to be waiting for ages if we print them in China. So I found this other printer uh, who was in Germany um, who was going to be able to deliver them in two months. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that seems much more reasonable. You know, their, their quote was reasonable. And, you know, I kind of had an extensive conversation with the, the printer, as I thought, at, um, at Spiel Essen in Germany. Um, so I was like, okay, yeah, cool, let's, let's go with this. Um, so we, you know, we sent through uh, the, con you know, we kind of signed all the things and everything was fine. And we sent through the print files and then there was radio silence. And we were emailing and emailing and hearing nothing back. And, um, you know, and every time I would go say, right, that's it, I'm pulling, I'm pulling this, this uh, print run, they would show me a photo of progress that they were making. So I was like, so at every stage where I would have cancelled it, um, they would, they would give me a little teaser of like a book that they had printed or like, you know, kind of mock-ups of the slipcases. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, it would take a long time to get back out of this and work with a different printer. Um, and, and the upshot of it was that um, we, they eventually stopped replying to emails at all. And we just heard nothing from them for a couple of weeks. Um, and so my business partner, Simon, rang them. Um, and he rang the number that we had uh, to discover the person that we had been dealing with um, had had a nervous breakdown um, and had left the company. The only other person at the company that we had spoken to had also left the company under mysterious circumstances. Um, the, they had printed all our books and they were sitting in a corner of their warehouse and they were going, oh, we wondered whose those were. And we were like, well, they've got our name on them. So, you know, obviously it didn't look very hard. But so we got them and that was fine and we discovered then that they weren't actually the printers at all. They were print brokers for two Estonian printers. So the books had come from one Estonian printer, but the slipcases and gem screens were coming from another Estonian printer. Um, and so then there was a whole drama with, they hadn't paid the Estonian printers, so the Estonian printers were refusing to send the slipcases to them. Um, we were trying to get them to liaise with the Estonian printers that, you know, and eventually we ended up bypassing them and speaking directly to the Estonian printers. But it was just a massive, like we sent through the final print files in October, what year is it now, 2017. Um, backers have started getting their books in the last couple of weeks only. It's taken more than a year, basically, to print these, to print these books and slipcases. Um, and it's, you know, and I've, I've kind of said this, you know, you've already heard the story at uh, Table.Gaming Live. Um, but it's really difficult to know what you can take away from that. Because when you, when you work with a new printer, you know, you get, um, we got print samples, we got print proofs from them. You know, everything looked, you know, it all seemed fine the whole way through. And the books are gorgeous. You know, now that they're printed, they're fantastic quality. But you just don't know who you're, when you, when you work with a new printer, you don't know who you're working with. And building relationships with your printer, um, finding a printer that you trust, who will deliver stuff on time and again, who will have good communications, is so important. 
and for us having lost that relationship that we had with our existing printer has has had a massive massive impact on our business as we're scrambling around trying to find other printers running into i mean they're you know my business partner would say that the natural enemy of the publisher is the printer because there are so many different ways that a printer can mess up your books as you have no idea um so having one that that will print good quality um, consistently and also have good communications about where your books are is you you can't put a price on a relationship like that so i, I think i would take a lesson from perhaps that and all of this really which is stuff happens <laughs> you, things are gonna go wrong with your kickstarter if they don't my god isn't this wonderful unique experience that you're having because it will never happen again um every kickstarter that i've run has had some sort of horrendous disaster happen to it i've had printers that turned out to be way more expensive no it wasn't it wasn't more, more expensive it was a completely different quality of print than what i was expecting i've had uh, an artist who got cancer in the middle of the project and had to be um, go through treatment while heroically I have to say trying to um, continue with the, the project um, and so you must assume that things are going to go wrong you don't know where it's going to go wrong but something's going to go wrong so allow extra time for it to go wrong and money and money mm. and, and I don't know mental it, health space I guess and, and when it does go wrong because it will as, as Josh said when it does go wrong, be transparent with your backers. Talk to you know, communication is a two-way thing. You know, the whole way through, it's it's been really embarrassing having to to meet backers at conventions and also having to post Kickstarter updates saying, we're we're just we're trying really hard to get you these books. We're doing everything we physically can, but these are the issues that are standing in our way at the moment. This is where things are. Um, so be really open and honest with your customers and with your backers. You know they're all decent people you know if you're a decent person then you know like you said they understand that stuff happens but you have to tell them you have to tell them because the worst thing i think for any kickstarter backer is that radio silence is just things going quiet and you're like i don't know what's going on yeah definitely agree. i mean i was also thinking like so there's been a lot of people especially in the american indie landscape mm -hmm. who really suffered when um i think it's the same printer kraken uh, uh, no oh, different, different printer okay yeah. uh, so kraken print went down last year as well and they had the issue where they were um accepting orders while that they had no intention of fulfilling or i don't know that they had no intention of fulfilling they had no ability to fulfill them and you know a number of uh publishers just had like their entire Kickstarter budget, like for printing, just gone. And a lot of the time, you know, you know, there's been sort of, they've had another sort of whip round or something, or like extremely affluent backers have <laughs> stepped in to help out or whatever. But like that can sometimes happen, and and that is sometimes another lesson is mm -hmm. that if you've been doing these things, we've been talking about about good communication and um, keeping backers in the loop. If there comes to be, a, there might come a point where you just can't make the thing anymore, and at that point you have to tell people. You, I do not think that you should be like remortgaging your house or like uh, beggaring yourself to put a book out. And fundamentally, like what Kickstarter demands is that you put a good faith effort into making the thing. You um, 
like I think their current policy is that you either have to give people refunds or show where the money has gone mm -hmm. if there is no more money gone but that is something that sadly has to happen sometimes and that is better than you ending up on the street or like having your money gone um, yeah. yeah that is right although so one thing I was wondering is like is things like printers going into administration things that you can get business insurance for or is it worth doing that not at our level of industry, not probably. at our level yeah. yeah I mean that's and certainly that's been our our experiences that I mean again we've been working with this printer since before I started at Pelgrane yeah so it's been at least I would say probably 10 years at yeah. least that we've been working with this printer and like I said we built up this fantastic relationship yeah. they were really they produced consistently great quality books you know they were always really accurate with the time the mm. timings that they could deliver things on and you know yeah. and it's you don't you know it's been 10 years mm. but I'm sure people have heard already about um, they a thing that they told me was that there's an international paper shortage mm -hmm. at the moment um, so they before they went into an administration they had to put up all of their prices 10 or 15 percent um, which we didn't kind of pass on to customers but again it's just you know when you're in the business of producing things there are all of these external forces beyond your control hashtag brexit uh, that you know have a mass and also the u.s um trade um tariffs on china that we're potentially going to have a, a really really destructive impact on particularly the board games industry but also on the role-playing industry as well to an extent for people who are printing in china quadrupling um, costs I yeah think yeah predicted. exactly yeah. you know and and you can't as a company owner and a, a, a publisher you just cannot control those things at mm. all you know you can have the best possible plans and just yeah, yeah. and so that's another thing that you know in favour of print-on-demand in some ways is like mm. you know if you put your book up on drive through RPG and they print they handle the printing of it and the shipping of it it's not so much your problem obviously if like backers are coming along <coughs> saying like this is awful this isn't the quality I was promised that is your problem in yeah. some ways but like I mean the PAG could be really good yeah. I mean yeah. the, the first book that uh, we ever did Lovecraft Desk we did it through uh, Lightning Source uh, we used their premium print option and it was seriously good quality people were remarking on the good quality you know alongside uh, print run quality books um, the only thing about POD though is it's, it's more expensive mm. um, and so I just wanted to mention this actually this is a, a, an option you've got to think through if you're doing a project for the first time am I gonna go POD or am I gonna do print run um, with POD for Lovecraft Desk, the cost of production was about fifty percent of the cover price. Now, it sounds like you're getting a lot of money, right? But that extra money's <laughs> got to pay for your artists and it's got to pay for various other overheads. So that's not a lot of money, and it essentially makes it unviable to sell through retailers because retailers take a very big cut as well. If you do a print run you can get units for like at the size we do which is a5 you can get a book for uh, three three pound fifty per book hmm. so it's a much much smaller share of the cost provided you can get up to the scale that's needed which is only about 500 books and i have to say a mistake i felt in retrospect a mistake we made with lovecraft desk because we assumed the kickstarter was basically all of our sales 
who are like, yay, 600 people bought our book, and that's the number that we're going to make. <laughs> right? Now, if uh, in, in fact, over three times as many people ultimately bought the book as the number that did the Kickstarter, so we could easily have justified a print run and made a lot more money with all of the attendant risks that we've just been discussing. So, but there's also a bit of a gamble. I mean, so... There is a sort of break-even point if you're looking mm -hmm. at um, that minimises the gamble. Like, if you're saying like, I have six hundred books to fulfil, um, how much would it cost me to print like two thousand? And it's possible that printing two thousand books in traditional print is going to cost you less than printing six hundred books by print on demand. Mm -hmm. But then you've got to warehouse them or store them or yeah. however you do and post them yourself, whereas if you print in demand, you don't have to collect postage fees and handle all that. Um, but ju just a, a quick note on the POD and the postal mm -hmm. thing. Something that, that stung us really badly was that um, to try and apologise to people for um, the Yellow King uh, Kickstarter being, being so late in fulfilment, we decided to uh, create a custom card deck. And like that, we said, oh, we'll just put it up on print on demand through drive through RPG, happy days. And it was happy days for American people, um, but the cost to ship a deck of cards, because they don't, they can't do POD decks of cards um, in the UK, the way they can split their print runs. So they can do split print runs for books, but not for cards. Mm. Um, so European, like non-US customers are going to have to pay something like $30 per deck of cards to get it shipped over. Yeah. You know, so again, like looking at all of the costs, shipping is such a, Shipping has been increasing like year on year, almost month on month mm -hmm. for the last two or three years. And it's, mm -hmm. again, it's something that has really impacted a lot of smaller publishers because you, you do a lot of pricing around the product and the production of it, but the shipping can be one of your biggest expenses. Well, if a printer is a publisher's nemesis, the uh, postage service is certainly their second in command. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could we, I'd, I'd quite like to give people a chance to ask questions. Mm. There's only about okay. 15 minutes left. Oh, right. So, has <coughs> anybody got a question? Yes. Uh, uh, so, I've worked on a couple of RPGs, uh, but mostly with like, other people's projects. Uh, do you have any recommendations or pitfalls for making sure that your first Kickstarter is successful? So the question was, uh, recommendations or pitfalls for making sure your first Kickstarter is successful? Is that kind of specifically in the context of a third-party person, or do you mean no, that's no, a publisher? Like so, so if you, you've worked on third-party things before, mm -hmm. but you want Oh, to but you want to do your own Kickstarter now, okay. Um, the first thing that I would say is start building your personal brand. As a, I would say that I recommend that to any writer or designer is have a blog, have like a Facebook page, have a Twitter account and use them a lot. Start building your audience long before you go to Kickstarter because you have to bring a lot of your market with you to Kickstarter. So I think a lot of people think that um, crowdfunding is like a license to print money and it's really not. It's, it's a, a kind of a hub for your existing customers to, to find you on and you will find new people if you can get on um, like the Kickstarter recommended lists, the staff picks and things like that, you will pick up some customers from Kickstarter, but mostly you'll have to bring your own people there. Um, so be realistic as well about the amount that you need, like your, your absolute minimum that you need to fulfill your, your project, um, and then and price it realistically and don't go super crazy with the stretch goals. Yeah. 
I'd also say have a uh, promotion plan <laughs> that yeah. um, starts work months before a mm -hmm. Kickstarter launch day. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes like saying, maybe you'll say like, I am going to tweet something every day about my game. Yeah. And I've put an alert on my computer that will tell me at this point, I've done this. Or maybe it's that like every week I am going to do a like long form blog post or Twitter thread or Facebook post mm -hmm. or whatever about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And it's important to not be shy about like putting that in front of like friends mm -hmm. and family because like I know when I was getting started like a lot of my early backers were people I knew in real life because mm -hmm. they know me. Um, and but also have a place where people can go to to learn more about this, whether it's a landing page on a website or a um, product page on itch.io or drive through RPG. I would, I would definitely recommend um, setting up a mailing list, like a notification list. Mm -hmm. um, so start capturing people's email addresses really quickly. So have a kind of a, so that if you're at a con like this or something and you're talking to people about your project and they go, oh, I'd love to, I'd love to back that when it starts. You can get their email address and then you can notify anyone who's been interested in, in it all the way through. I think that's a really useful thing to do. So I'm just going to add two things to that very quickly. One, that makes it sound like you have to do a lot of stuff to be successful. And I think the more stuff you've done in terms of self-promotion, the better. Mm -hmm. But don't kind of feel like, oh, I've not been doing, you know, I've not been doing my blog for two years, so I can't do it. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, you, you probably have more of a presence than you realise. Um, already, I expect you are out there talking about stuff that you're um, doing, so don't kind of, I wouldn't be a perfectionist about it. Um, the second point is about contingency. Um, best advice I've ever had, have a 10% contingency budget. Um, first Kickstarter I ran, a Brexit referendum happened in the middle of it and the exchange rate crashed. And all the people I was paying in US dollars, I had to add a ton of extra money because I had to pay them more. Um, in pounds, uh, that ate up almost all of my contingency budget. But I'm so glad that I had that contingency budget because otherwise I wouldn't have been paying myself. More questions? Yes. So, like, what the how much it do, from your experience, would it cost to print an A4-ish sized RPG book on print on demand as opposed to print one? How many pages yeah. are you talking about? Uh, just like this many roughly just like okay an average amount so about 100 150 mm. i'd say i mean i i would go you can go on to drive through rpg um and there is a calculator you can literally just tell it how many pages and what size and it will tell you the cost so don't don't ask for a guess from us just go and look yeah. it up is there um, a couple of things that will impact it like you know the first question we asked was how many pages has it that's that's one of the biggest things that changes the price also the paper that you use um, will change it if you go for lower quality paper you can get it cheaper whether it's in color or black and white is another factor that'll increase or decrease the price so there are ways that you can kind of skew things like that so for example I've just logged on to uh, drive RPG um, a soft cover black and white a4 book of that scale will take about £3.50. A hardcover premium colour uh, book will take about £15. So that's one actually tip I'd have for people getting started in indie RPGs is you don't need colour. Mm -hmm. It's 
perfectly fine. Like, so long as you're, you've got, like, good white space and maybe interesting sort of, well, like, you know. Graphic design. Good, all right graphic design. Yeah. And there's, like, plenty of sort of free graphic design resources out there as well. Uh, like, look at uh, gameicons.net uh, is a good one. Or the Noun Project has a great list of icons that you can use. You have to ad attribute them. Or you can pay to use them without attribution, but whatever. Um, black and white is so much cheaper than colour and people don't necessarily always realise that. Um, I will say with Drive for RPG their black and white paper quality isn't great, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. So the question is, once you've done, once you've dealt with an artist, how long does that relationship last after that? Are they done after the project, or do you continue on with that? So personally, I love having a stable of artists that I've worked with, that I know are reliable, that I can stick with and return to from project to project. So long as, this is especially useful when you're, you've got a core book and you wanted to make supplements for that, is you want to have a consistent art style with the previous one. But even if you just know what an artist is good at, and like I've got an artist I use a lot who's great with landscapes and great with technology, does not do faces. So if I want a uh, piece of art that's a grand landscape or something, I'll go with them. If I want like a character portrait, I won't go with them. And um, you just build up this idea of who is good for what. Yeah, I, th I think it varies. It definitely var it varies kind of on the size of the company and the number of artists they work with. Like I know a lot of smaller indie companies will, will definitely work with the same artist together and there'll be a lot more of a kind of a collaboration. So there'll be a lot more input from the artist into the create into the creative look of the project. Whereas for somebody like us, like we work mostly with freelance artists. So while there are some people like Jay was saying that are, have proven themselves to be reliable and really great artists in the past, so we continue to work with them over and over again, they would be more people we would hire in for a project and then once they've literally submitted their final files and we've paid them, they're, they're done and they're in kind of thing. I will say, actually, a lot of the time I have hired other people's artists. Yeah. Like, I've looked at uh, books on my shelf and thought what had a uh, great aesthetic that I wanted for this mm -hmm. document. And the thing is, once someone has worked for an RPG product, they're probably willing to work for another one, mm -hmm. unless the experience has burned them horribly. Mm -hmm. But, um, mm -hmm. and if you're sort of reasonable about deadlines mm -hmm. or upfront communication, they're Generally, someone who's already worked in RPGs is a really great person to go to. Yeah, and I, I would add to that the um, sometimes the artist brings an audience with them. Mm. So I I know the artist for my last uh, project had their own following, and I could see them tweeting about it, and I could see their followers going, "Wow, I really love your art, and I really love what you're doing with this, and I'm going to get it." Brilliant. You know, I I couldn't have reached that person. Was so, that Anna? Claudia. It was Anna Landon. Oh, really? Yeah, Claudia's got her own yeah, uh, audience as well, yeah. for sure. So I was about to shout out Anna because, like, she's running Legacy at the moment and is just illustrating her own campaign a bit and putting it online on her Twitter, and that's amazing. So if I want to make another Legacy project, I'll probably go to her because she's already making Legacy out without me even paying her. So. <laughs> <laughs> Any more? So we've got one at the back. Yeah. Um, 
quick one to get there actually. Uh, so you mentioned the different kinds of printing you can do. Um, say you wanted to do the most basic thing you can do, A5 soft cover, black and white, and you wanted to kick select. What's kind of like your minimum critical mass in terms of number of people you kind of need to get on board for that? Like, you know, what kind of numbers are so if you're starting, so the question is, um, what's the minimum critical mass you need for a really basic product, A5, black and white, etc. And the thing is that if you're going print on demand, you don't need a critical mass at all. Because like, theoretically, the cost to print a single book is baked into the pledge tiers. Um, what you need is the money to pay yourself, the money to pay for art, um, the money to pay for taxes and Kickstarter fees and that sort of thing, and the money to pay for shipping, which if you're doing print on demand again, you don't need to worry about shipping. Mm -hmm. um, so theoretically, you can just calculate what the cost is to you of the fixed costs, the writing, the art, the production costs, and just go from there. Hi, so th thanks for all your examples. They're really interesting. I want to go back to... Um, Jay, you were talking about dealing with that, that artist who wasn't communicating and delivering the art. Given that you're in the middle of a contract, I mean, what did you do then? I mean, did mm. you end the contract and did you have all those terms saying you know, in your contract, get out? And mm. what happened to the art that you already did have? Um, how did you deal with that situation? So in that situation, I was able to resolve it informally. <laughs> I talked to the artist and said, like, okay, we'd promised X amount, X pounds for Y works. You produced so X over whatever so I give, gave her that fraction and she was happy to agree and follow make a second contract sort of agreeing to that but what I do now is I have a two-stage contract situation where um, the first contract confirms their willingness to enter into a relationship with me where they I will give them art briefs and they will give me money uh, uh, sorry, they'll give me art and I'll give them money. There we go, there we go, there we go. Um, and so just setting up the framework. Of, and then I secondarily contract artists on a per piece basis, mm -hmm. saying here is the art brief, here is what I'll give you for it, um, here are the timelines. And so that way every single piece is sort of atomized in that way. And sort of like, I would say with, I think that might be... Okay, um, we've been asked to wrap up, so thank you very much uh, for attending. Uh, we will be putting this out as mm -hmm. a podcast episode on The League Presents, uh, which you might want to check out on the internet. So we do a podcast where we play, uh, we do actual plays of small press games, and we do occasional business panels, hopefully more like this. <laughs> um, so please do check it out. And um, I think certainly for me as well, um, I'm downstairs on the Pelgrane Press booth here at Dragon Meet. So if anyone has any additional questions that didn't get covered in this, feel free to like stop by. Yeah, and we're opposite it. the Pelgrane Press. Booth. That's yeah. right. Just come so down you can like bounce between us or yeah. dodge the books we'll be throwing at each other. Right okay. next to the main entrance <laughs> in Trade Hall. One. One, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I also had to think about that. Yeah. And uh, how did they find you on the internet, Josh? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, if you go to blackarmada.com, that is where I keep my blog and my store, and soon the page for Last Fleet, which will be on Kickstarter next year. Yay! Yay. Um, do you want to okay, uh, you can find me uh, at ufopress.co.uk or at jcilees on Twitter. 
Um, and you can find us at uh, Pelgrane Press, P-E-L-G-R-A-N-E uh, press.com. Um, and I'm at Kat, C-A-T-T-H-M on Twitter. Ah, oh, Twitter, Armada Josh. Okay. Or one word. Yeah. Right. All right, thank okay. you everyone. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.